No 
scoffer's crown no burden great could hold you down in strength you reign forever let your church proclaim Christ is risen from the dead trampling over death by death
Father, we thank you for being the provision for our lives. We thank you for giving yourself for us. When we were hopeless, when we were desperate, unable to do anything for ourselves, you came for us, and we thank you for that. We thank you this morning as we celebrate this time of remembrance of you and the life you gave for us. Be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. We have the joy of celebrating communion today. And uh, communion is not required for salvation. Communion is an opportunity to obey the Lord because he is the one who gave this ordinance to us uh, through the apostles. And it has been passed down. It is our opportunity to remember his death and resurrection. And so we observe this together. If you didn't get the elements, uh, they're in the back if you want to grab that. And uh, if you want to start tearing off the top of the wafer, feel free. But if you'll hold those, we will take them together. Uh, our privilege is to declare his death and resurrection uh, as we remember Christ at this time. And we do that to celebrate the gospel and the fact that he has offered to us unconditionally his gift, that we can know Christ by grace through faith. And the gospel is very simple, and it's because we're a broken and a sinful people that uh, are just deserving of death, separated from God, and must pay for that sin with the penalty of death. But that's what Christ did for us, and that's why we celebrate communion. And so the simple gospel is this. If you've not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, received his free gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, is that you just simply believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And you are committing your life to him. You're inviting him into your life to lead you. And his gift of the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of salvation is yours eternally. And the Lord will enter your life and lead you. And that's very exciting. And that's one of the reasons that we observe communion each month is to uh, consider what Christ has done on our behalf and to meditate on it and to think about it more seriously. The um, fact of obedience uh, comes up after we trust Christ. Uh, grace is not earned we trust Christ by grace through faith. It is his gift. He has done all the work on the cross, paid the penalty of death for us, and offered us the free gift of salvation. Grace is not earned. But grace is not opposed to effort. And once we place our faith in Christ and he calls us to a life of worshiping him, to be drawn to him, to obey him as a loving response to all that he is and all that he has done in our lives. And so as we go to communion this morning, I want to read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. And I want these uh, two verses to be verses that we can meditate on and you can be drawn to worship Jesus and to celebrate him and to thank him in prayer where you sit as we uh, remember his death and resurrection. And you can also evaluate your life 
your obedience uh, to Christ as you respond to him with giving him all that you are in response to all that he is. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live, those who place their faith in Christ, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let's take a couple of minutes of just prayer and meditation on God's word. Uh, let the Holy Spirit uh, talk to you and, and your heart and you talk to, to Jesus. And then I will draw us back together and we will take the elements together that symbolize the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you now. We honor you as the God-man who came to earth and you showed us what God is like and you redeemed us from our sins by going to the cross and this horrible death, taking on the sin of the world. You died and were buried and, and you rose again victorious over sin and death and, and we love you for this incredible manifestation of your love toward us. While we were sinners, you died for us. And you confront us with a question in these verses today, are we no longer living for ourselves, but for you who redeemed us? And it makes us feel a little uneasy, Lord. But we thank you that you don't leave us on our own to do that, that you continually draw us to yourself and that you empower us through the Holy Spirit to obey you. And so we ask for the grace to respond in the ways that you present us each day to no longer live for ourselves, but for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna take the elements now, and, and I'm going to read the words of Jesus from Luke 22. As he spoke to the disciples the night before he went to the cross. So if you'll peel back the top from the wafer and take that in your hand, this symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. 
And as Jesus held this and after giving thanks, this is what he said. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Then the cup. Representing the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. This is what Jesus said as he took the cup after they had eaten. This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Let's take it together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for you and for your love of us. We thank you that you don't stop working in our lives when we trust you, but that you continue lifelong through the work of your spirit and your word and allowing us to become more like you. And so we ask for that grace to love you and to serve you in return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can set your cups on the floor and uh, we'll get those later. <clears throat> We need to discuss, dismiss uh, Sunshine Kids Club. Thank you for the props. <laughs> this is kindergarten through fifth grade. It's out this door, and if you are a guest, please walk your children over and, and meet the staff, and uh, you can even check them in at the counter if you wish. I'm thankful for our Sunshine Kids Club leaders and their commitment uh, to these children. It's a rotation, different ones each week. And um, it's uh, incredible to stand outside in the hallway and just see their smiles and their love for the children as they bring God's word to bear upon them. <clears throat> Today we're going to look at Haggai. And uh, I want to start by saying that spiritual lethargy is a condition of uh, lacking enthusiasm to love God and lacking energy to serve God. And I think the sin there is one of complacency. It's a smug satisfaction that we are where we want to be as followers of Jesus Christ. It may even be an arrogant satisfaction that we are where Jesus wants us to be as followers of Jesus Christ. 
And this is not a legalistic message. I think you'll see God's grace throughout. But God does confront us. Jesus tells us to count the cost when we follow him. And so this would fall into that category, even though we're opening up the Old Testament. We're turning to the book of Haggai, the uh, third from the last book in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bible and if it's digital, it's, it's much more, much easier uh, to find. But we, we fight spiritual lethargy and complacency on a daily basis, don't we? I, I don't think I'm the only one that finds that going on in my life at times because there seems to be a, a drift toward selfishness, a drift toward not serving the one who gave his life for me but putting myself in the center of my universe. And that's something that has to be fought on a daily basis as we pursue holiness, as we pursue righteous living in the power of the Spirit. Well, the Israelites had become complacent in their fear of God, in worshiping God, in obeying God. And, and so let's review their story, if, if you will, for a minute here. They are living in Israel, and God sends many, many prophets to them to say, you guys are worshiping idols, and I've told you to worship the one true God. And if you continue in this, then I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to put you in captivity for 70 years, and you're going to pay a price for this sin. Well, every once in a while, they would bounce back and, and they would repent of their sin and they would confess their sin and, and they would begin to worship the one true God. But finally, they had gone far enough in pursuing the idols of the land and intermarrying with the peoples of the land, breaking all the, the commands of God that were important to God for his people that he chose. And so he sends them off into captivity to Babylon. And he says, you want idols? I'll give you idols. That's all you'll have here. In fact, in Babylon itself, I've read where the, the, even the pavers on the streets uh, said, all glory to Marduk. And there were idols and there were statues on all the corners and all the major buildings and around the land. And, and so God sent them there and they were paying the price for their sin. And then... He brought King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus said, you know what? I'm going to send you guys back to your land. Selfish motives. He thought that if he sent all the people back to their own lands and they began to worship their own gods, then those gods would be happy with him. And all collectively, all the gods around the Mediterranean basin would make him really elevate him and give him strength and power and glory. But that's another story. He sent the Israelites back. And so what do you think happened? I mean, it's been 70 years, so many have died off. But in this first trip back with 50,000 Jews, don't you just picture this being an exciting time? They're rejuvenated, right? We get to go back to Jerusalem. They're excited. They're enthused. This is God's land, his people returning, and they just know God's going to come through for them. Well, it didn't really go like that. Life got in the way. They built an altar. They started a foundation for the temple, which is what Cyrus had asked them to do and God had commanded them to do. 
And, and then they quit because life got in the way. They had to restore this nation's economy. They had to build up some walls for protection. They had to find their own homes and, and get some jobs and restore their farms or their livestock or whatever it was that they did to make a living. And, and so they drifted away from what God had called them to do. And for 16 years, they did what they wanted to do. And they had some misplaced priorities. And we saw that in chapter one, because God brought Haggai onto the scene to give them four messages in a five-month period. And all of those messages were designed to draw them back. The first one in chapter one was to point out their misplaced priorities and to say, you're putting yourself and your agenda above God's agenda. And that's not what he wants. And then the first part of chapter two last week, we saw encouragement for those who are discouraged in serving God. When we do turn and serve God, there's often a discouragement, often wondering, is this even worth it? Is anything taking place here? Are people growing because of this? And today we want to look at the third message, the third message out of four. Complacency is revealed in disobedience. Spiritual lethargy reveals itself in a lack of love for God, the wrong attitude toward God, and service to God that is more duty than delight. And so we're talking more about moving toward a loving relationship with God or a loving response to God that plays out in holiness or righteous living. We serve a gracious God who does not allow us to exist in this condition of smugness. He doesn't allow us to exist in a condition of lethargy and is constantly working to draw us back. And so as we look at Haggai 3, we're going to see that. He doesn't allow for spiritual complacency. And so as we start, let's ask ourselves this question. I'm asking you to ask yourself this question. Do you have a smug satisfaction with your walk? with Jesus right now? Are you content with whatever plateau you have reached? And Lord willing, many of you see yourself growing and excited about Jesus and responding to him in love. But many of us are drifting the other direction. How is it in your life? Are you growing deeper in love with Jesus? Are you finding obedience a wonderful thing? as you choose to love him? Are you aware of his discipline in your life in calling you back? Or are you in need of a course correction? That's the title of our sermon series because that's why God put Haggai on the scene six centuries ago, eight centuries ago, I guess, six centuries before the Lord came. These people were in need of a course correction, and perhaps we are as well. So we're going to look at Haggai chapter th uh, 2. We're going to look at verses 10 through 19, see three movements. The first one is that we've got to take sin seriously. The second movement is seeing God's grace in discipline. And then the third one is experiencing his blessing through obedience. So let's look at verses 10 through 14. Holiness requires taking sin seriously. Holiness requires taking sin seriously. If we're going to move toward following Jesus on the path he has called us of righteous living, then we are going to acknowledge sin in our lives, and we're going to 
change our mind about going that direction, and we're going to confess our sin and receive forgiveness of sins, restored fellowship with Jesus Christ. Holiness requires taking sin seriously. Now, Jeremiah informed us that the, sin is that the heart is deceitful. We all struggle with fear and with pride. We struggle with sin. Obedience starts in the heart, and it leads to holiness. Obedience is not duty. It is delighting to do God's will, God's way. And so Haggai confronts sin with his message. Interesting side note, Zechariah, across the page there, the next post-exilic prophet, has now begun to preach as well. Between the second message and the third message of Haggai, Zechariah has stepped into the gap, and now he is speaking, and he's got the same theme going here. He wants, he's used of God to see the people awaken their hearts to God, to be restored to a, a deeper love relationship with him. Well, this is what Haggai says in verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, and then we stop. Verse 10 gives us our quick context. It's December 18th, 520 BC. Early rains start mid to late October. And, and so one of the things that has gone on in that agricultural uh, type of economy is people have begun to plow and plant because the ground is softer with the rain that has come. So that has taken place since the last message a couple of months ago. But there's a problem, and Haggai is going to address that. Defiled hearts lead to defiled service for the Lord. That's why holiness always starts in the heart. The Lord asked Haggai to get a ruling from the priests, and they had the role of interpreting Scripture. That was given by the Mosaic Law, and they were the experts. So he's going to use this methodology of asking the people to go ask questions and get answers to help them hold on to it better, to remember it better, to learn it to learn it according to God's word. And so this is what we see in verses 11 and 12. The first thing is that holiness is not transferable. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no, no. You've got holy meat. It's holy because it's been prepared for a sacrifice. But if you go out and touch other things with it, other sacrifices or just this food, will that become holy? No, it won't. Holiness is not transferable. It's the first thing that we see in verse 11 here. You can touch something unholy with holiness and it doesn't become holy. Now we're talking about ceremonial defilement here in cleanliness. The Lord has set aside certain things to himself. And using that, Haggai asks a second question in verse, 12, verse 13. If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. It's a question that has to do with ritual defilement. And what we see is that something that is ritually clean, touching something ritually, uh, or something that is ritually dirty, touching something that is uh, clean or even unclean, will not make it clean. And that's because in the symbolism, sin contaminates. That's what Haggai is getting at here. 
Sin contaminates. It starts in the heart. When the unholy touches the holy, the holy becomes unholy. That which is clean does not clean the dirty. So just think about that just logically, just everyday illustrations. If I take some clean, purified water in a bottle and I pour it into a bottle of sewer water, it does not cleanse the sewer water. In fact, it goes the other way around, right? The sewer water defiles the pure water. If we take somebody that's healthy, say a spouse, and, and that spouse goes to their spouse who has the flu, and they kiss them on the lips, and, and that kiss does not make the person with flu healthy. In fact, it's quite possible that that person with the flu is going to make them unhealthy. And so what Haggai is getting here through the word of the Lord is that you cannot transfer holiness. It's got to start in the heart and that anything that is unclean will continue to make unthings clean because sin like germs is pervasive and stains the human heart. So Haggai's had this object lesson. Now he draws a conclusion from it. And the conclusion is the Jews are defiled. They're sinful because their hearts are unclean. Verse 14, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, talking about being unclean, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Their hearts are unclean because of their disobedience. Therefore, everything that they do and think and offer is unclean or sinful. Most likely, the issue is this. They've made the assumption that because they are God's people and they are doing this task of beginning to work on the temple and they are living in Jerusalem in God's town, that they are holy people, that, that they are good to go, that everything they do will please the Lord. And that's not true because they've got sin in their hearts. They're, doing, they're not doing what God has required them to do. And they're smug as they relate to God. Sometimes we think that way, right? We think if we put a Bible on the dashboard, we're good to go. If we attend church enough times or we give enough money to church or charity or we do all kinds of things, we come up with all kinds of things that we rate as good. Some people would call it selective morality. Or we get involved in popular goodness. You know, whatever's popular in the culture at the time. It might be any form of social justice. And all of these things are good, but they don't make us holy. We've got to turn our heart toward Jesus. We've got to let him decide if there's sin in our heart that needs to be removed. We've got to let him deal with that sin. We've got to let him draw us toward himself, making us more like him to participate in the righteous living that he's given us to do. God wants to see a surrender of the will with a desire to do things his way, to bring him glory and delight, to serve him out of love and not to serve him to get him to love us more or to recognize us because we are doing what he asks. God wants us to take sin seriously. He, he wants a full and complete break with sin. And this is where it gets harder on us as we think about the sins that, that the Spirit brings to mind. But think about the um, biblical historical account in, in 1 Samuel 15. This is Saul. He's gone out to fight the Amalekites. He's been charged by the prophets 
to what to do. And, and the idea is just kill everybody, kill the king, kill everybody and kill all the livestock and all the animals and, and leave it at that, you know? And, and so King Saul goes out and, and he defeats the Amalekites and he brings back the king sort of as a trophy. And he lets the people bring back the best of the livestock and the animals. And Samuel comes up to him and says, have you obeyed the Lord? And Saul says, yes, I have. I went out and defeated the Amalekites. And, and Samuel says, well, why do I hear the lowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep? And Saul says, well, you know, the people, the people did it. A little blame shifting here. And then he comes up with a creative idea. The people will use that to sacrifice to the one true God. And Samuel says, you have sinned against God. You've got some noble ideas here. You might be sincere about it, but you have sinned against God. It's just a, an account that shows us how seriously God takes that. And it's not just because he's holy and pure. That's certainly enough. But also because he's looking out for us. When we think about David and Psalm 32, his response to living in sin and how his spirit just dried up and he lost all desire for life. Why? Because he lived in sin and he didn't confess it and he just was rebellious of heart. God wants us to deal seriously with sin. It was Samuel who said the words of the Lord, I desire obedience rather than sacrifice. Calling out Saul. All of us know how to play the game that, that Saul does, right? We can easily justify our actions. We can compromise our, our thinking. Holiness in the heart is a battle. But God has made provision for us. There's his grace when it comes to sin. He's made provision by uniting us to Christ by delivering us from the power of sin, sin is still with us, but it no longer enslaves us. And by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit to teach us, to guide us, to convict us of sin and to empower us to obey. God has given us provision to take sin seriously. That's his grace. He's also given us responsibility to obey him when it comes to sin. He holds us accountable for following Jesus, for making choices of obedience, for making choices to love God, to let him shape us. Could it be that God is stirring your heart and my heart even today as we think about what he wants us to do in following Jesus, perhaps even dealing with sin? We've got to take sin seriously because God does. We need the word of God to point out sin. We need the Spirit of God to give us strength to deal with temptation and be repentant towards sin. We need the people of God to encourage us, perhaps to point out when there is a blind spot, but to encourage us to stand with us and walk alongside us in dealing with specific sin. Holiness requires a clean heart, and holiness requires taking sin seriously if we're going to move in that direction of a clean heart. The Jews had ignored their own sin toward God, and God was reminding them that it's important to him. And in the next three verses, we rediscover God's grace in drawing them back in the midst of their sin, verses 15 to 17. We see the holiness returns due to God's attentive care. Verses 
God doesn't leave us in smug complacency. Holiness returns to our lives through God's attentive care. The Israelites sinned by not getting started on the temple. They were disobedient in part because of the hostile nations around them and because of their own selfishness. Disobedience brings the discipline of God. And that's what we're going to see here as Haggai goes back even to chapter 1. In the Old Testament, it was laid out clearly in, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. You obey me and you experience my blessing. You disobey me and you will not experience my blessing. In fact, there will be punishment or curse as Moses called it when he wrote that, when he wrote God's word. Blessings included many material things, children, livestock, crops. But if you disobey, your crops will not grow. You'll lack resources. In order to live, God's desires and commands for his people had been moved to the circumference of their lives. They still wanted God around. They were not outwardly rebellious here. Now that they had begun by this third message to work on the temple. We read of no worship of idols here. We simply find a drift into disobedience. A drift that they were comfortable with until God sent his prophet we, we've got to take sin seriously, and if not, God gets our attention. The Israelites have not been intentional in choosing holiness. Instead, they've sought their own comfort and pleasures. And so this is when God speaks to them. He disciplines them to get their attention, but also to draw them back to himself. And we'll see that in his words here. Haggai reminded them of, of life and how unsatisfying life is when we look to anything else other than God, to fulfill us. And when we're in disobedience to God, this is what he said in verses 15 and 16. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20 very small percentage to what they were used to and what they were expecting. But this was the discipline of the Lord. Then Haggai makes it clear <laughs> that it's the, door, the Lord's doing and that he does that to restore them. Verse 17, I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Excessive drought, with the wind, excessive moisture, with the mildew, hail, all of these elements cause severe damage to unprotected crops. And this is what God has sent on them because of their disobedience. And while these Israelite farmers are desperately praying for God to save their crops, he is sending the hail and the wind and the rain in large measure. God wanted to turn them back. God's discipline of the Israelites here, of us in our lives, is a tool of grace. It's a tool of grace because he uses it to restore us to him, to turn us back to him, that we might experience a deeper loving relationship with him. Notice the phrase, you did not come back to me. That was the purpose. That's why he smote them with all these horrible things. That's why their economy was going down, whether it was just individual homes or the whole nation. It was because they would not return. They were not aware of his 
discipline in their lives. But he made it clear that that was his intent for the punishment. Excuse me, for the discipline. It's not punishment. It is discipline. And the purpose of that is to draw them back. We see the same thing in Hebrews 12, where it's very clearly stated that as a father disciplines his son because he loves him, so the God the Father disciplines us. He wants to draw us back. He wants to save us from ourselves and our own sins. And so one of the questions that arises for us is, how do we know <laughs> in our sufferings and trials if we're being disciplined or not? Because we experience suffering and trials in a fallen world, right? There's enough brokenness to go around, and sometimes that causes us suffering and trials. And we, cover, we experience suffering and trials sometimes because of our own foolish choices. It's just the consequence of that. And sometimes we suffer trials and, and, and sufferings because it is the work of God in our lives. Sometimes he's working to, to grow us into maturity, spiritual maturity. And sometimes it's discipline to draw us back. So how do we decipher that? Because like I said, in, for, the, for the Israelites, it was very clear. They had Deuteronomy 28 and 29. In fact, all the things that we saw listed in, in chapter 1 of Haggai in his first message, all the things that God did to, to discipline them, were listed in the book of Deuteronomy as these are consequences that will happen. So an observant Jew, certainly a priest or a rabbi, would be able to tell them this is directly the discipline of God. Well, here's what I think makes a difference for us when it comes to our lives. Certainly all these other things are going on that I just mentioned. But I think when it comes to knowing it's the discipline of God, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus has entered our lives through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. So we can ask him, you know, what, what is going on? Is this because of sin in my life? It's the Holy Spirit that guides us and, and teaches us and can lead us to repentance and to simply confessing that sin and experiencing forgiveness for that sin. The Jews had it clearly promised directly in, in Deuteronomy. We don't, but we do have the Holy Spirit to help us make a course correction. We can ask God to make it clear to us. We can ask the Holy Spirit to direct us to Scripture that might make us aware of sin in our lives. And we certainly have the people of God, the church family, wise counsel to go to for people that might see blind spots in our lives that we don't see. Holiness requires taking sin seriously, especially when we become complacent in our walk with Jesus. God, by his grace, draws us back through loving discipline. He's given us a hand up in, in getting back to holiness, serving him out of love and not duty. And in the final section, verses 18 and 19, Haggai speaks to the blessing of God. This is what I would say. Holiness brings God's blessing. It's pretty simple, but it's very direct in verses 18 and 19. Sufferings and trials are not blessings in, a, in and of themselves, but they are channels for God's grace. They are how he often communicates with us, and they are how he draws us back to strengthen our faith and to deepen our love for him. In these last two verses, Jesus, or Haggai reminds the Israelites 
that obedience brings God's blessing. He says in verse 18, do consider, and there's that strong word that he used three times earlier in chapter one, uses it three times now. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider. The Israelites had started to lay the foundation 16 years ago. They had built an altar that they used temporarily or maybe off and on. And now they begin to work on the rest of the temple. And it's going to be four years before the temple is restored and before it's dedicated to the Lord. God wants them to reflect on what has taken place in their lives their captivity and their return, their disobedience, his discipline. And now moving forward, he wants to call them to obedience. So he says, consider, evaluate, reflect on, take thought. Through all that has gone on, God's grace has rained down upon them. Isn't that incredible? For those of us that struggle, for those of you that struggle with the idea that we sin and God is mad at us and, and, and wants nothing more to do with us, we see this. This is how he responds. Constantly drawing back, constantly showering grace, lavishing grace upon us. So now he makes, uh, they've tasted the goodness of the, of the Lord, even in his discipline, and now Haggai gives God's promise in verse 19. Is the seed still in the barn? even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree. It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Is the seed still in the barn? No, it's not in the barn because they've been plowing and planting the last two months. They put it in the ground. It has not come time for harvest yet. So none of that has borne fruit. But God's promise is that it will. His blessing is material here. And they will experience his blessing through crops and through abundant crops for what they need. I will bless you, says the Lord. He's already promised to bless them with his presence and to never leave them. And now he says your crops will be fruitful. It's a blessing that is real and tangible. We don't see that as much in the New Testament in our own lives, although we can count many ways that God has made provision for us. But we can say this about God's blessing, that it is deep and abiding joy and satisfaction in loving God, in knowing God, in serving God, that nothing in this world can compete with. Our blessings today are not always material, but satisfaction comes when we turn to God, when we depend upon God, when we lean on God, when we seek to discover what God has for us and seek to discover, understanding him better each day. Sin is hostile to God. Sin leads to death and destruction. Sin causes us to go in search of new and different sins because it's never satisfying. Only God can bring deep and lasting satisfaction in this world. Let me read a well-known quote from C.S. Lewis that I, keep, I think captures our fascination in pursuing the things of this world over what God has to offer in terms of his blessings. Chris reminded me of this recently. So what C.S. Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If we settle for smugness, if we remain spiritually lethargic, then we just settle for what the world has to offer us. And we turn our backs on the infinite joy. We don't even seek to discover the infinite joy that Christ has for us in walking with him, in dealing with sin seriously, in being aware of his discipline and thankful for his grace all throughout our lives. Our calling is to return to Jesus in obedience. Holiness brings God glory and our pursuit of obedience brings us great satisfaction in turning to him and finding him satisfying for our lives. So as we close out the third message from Haggai, I want to go back to this word consider that he uses three times in this passage. It's that idea of reflect upon and evaluate. And, and so as we think through the different sections of the passage that we looked at today, uh, the first question would be, are you aware of the spiritual lethargy or smugness in, in your own life, complacency? Because either we are moving toward the light, toward Jesus Christ, or moving away. There is no plateau, no middle ground. Are you taking sin seriously as God does, recognizing its destructive work in your life? Third question, are you aware of God's discipline as he lovingly calls you back to a deeper relationship? And finally, are you responding with obedience responding with obedience as he leads you back as he shows you the way back and and for those of you who feel like hey dave you know i'm too far gone to be able to just make that choice today and and return and i would say to you that uh, you have god's provision you're united with christ you've delivered from the dominion of sin you're no longer enslaved to it you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is at work in you and through you. And so just turn and take one step at a time. You, you didn't get where you are in one fall swoop. You took one step at a time getting there. And now turn and step one at a time back to Jesus. Let him empower you. Discover his infinite joy and, and give up on spiritual smugness and, and give up on the pleasures that this world has to offer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you love us enough to call us back. We are thankful for the grace that you lavished upon your people, the Israelites, and the grace that you lavished upon your people, the church, the body of Christ. And we recognize that we don't take sin seriously on most occasions. And we are thankful that you do and that you call us back and that you discipline us and that you get our attention and, and not to watch us squirm and punish us, but to let us enjoy a deeper relationship with you. And, and Lord, we ask for that grace to obey you, to walk that path back to you. We ask for the strength that your grace would be sufficient and that we would experience your infinite joy and love. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.